the Smithsonian, the National Mall, Arlington National Cemetery, the World War II Memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial, the Space and Science Museum. These are just a few of the things that I love about Washington, D.C. Having had the opportunity to go on two different occasions now, I look forward to any chance that I have to go back to the nation's capital, the state capitol building, and to look around and to see and to celebrate our history. There are seemingly countless memorials and monuments that have been erected to both recognize and to celebrate the heroics of men and women, the matriarchs and patriarchs of our great nation that have sacrificed, that have given so much. The last time I was at the state capitol, they had changed out several busts. Each state gets two busts in the, in the nation's capital, and they switch them out periodically. If uh, states would like you to add a different bust, they can go to their local representatives and they can apply for it and submit it and then they will transfer or change these memorials out. For me, I don't know that there's a monument or memorial that I appreciate more than the Lincoln Memorial. I think it's really cool to look at. I think they're all really cool to look at, but the Lincoln Memorial right there on the National Mall overlooks the state capitol. It is ornate, it's beautiful, the, the marble work that is done there. It's also celebrated some of the nation's greatest voices and leadership and activism. It was there that Martin Luther King gave his now famous speech, I Have a Dream. And the last time that I was in Washington, D.C., I began to realize just how much I didn't know about so many of our nation's great leaders. And so I began to inquire about different books and videos that I could watch to learn more. Growing up, I, like you, learned about history in class. I had to write reports on presidents. I had to memorize all of the presidents. I had to memorize all of the states and the significant things that went along with that. But I was blown away when I picked up a book by Doris Kearns Godwin, who is an academic historian, and she wrote a book called Leadership, Leading in Tumultuous Times. And it's a book that highlights four very different presidents' journey to the White House and in leading through tumultuous times, including Lyndon B. Johnson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. The very first chapter is an in-depth look at Abraham Lincoln's life, and it really begins from early adolescence. I learned a lot about Lincoln, about his tumultuous childhood, about his mother dying at an early age about his father leaving him with his family, his sisters in a, in a dirt shack while he went to the nearest town to inquire about a new wife so that someone could raise the kids, about being moved all over the place and changing one farm to another farm and the discipline that he endured, that he had to leave school, though a bright academic future was in front of him, he forfeit a formal education so that he could go help his father on the farm, so that he could help raise his sister so that he could do the, 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 the day in and day out tasks of putting bread on the table of providing for his family alongside his father. What I was surprised to hear is that he had a photographic memory of sorts 
that he could pick up a book, borrowed from a friend, he could read it and retain a tremendous amount of information. And as I began to study more on Lincoln, and as I began to read what others have said about him, friends and historians, it seemed that Lincoln spent his entire life, from early childhood up until the point of his death at Ford's Theater, getting ready for something significant. He would fail multiple times over before he would ever realize success. He would fail in business. He would fail in his family. He would lose not one but two children to death. He would fail in elections. He would fail. And each time he failed, he looked at it as an opportunity to grow, to learn. He said, the one thing I'm not afraid of is is failure. And because of that, he wasn't afraid to try. Every opportunity he saw was a chance to learn and grow so that he could be all the more prepared when the next opportunity presented itself. I pulled five excerpts from Godwin's book, different statements people made about Abraham Lincoln that I want to share with you this morning. The first is when she says that Abraham Lincoln viewed a dream that he might someday be in a situation to make the most of his talents to begin to take hold of. In other words, he would would consider what his natural gifts and strengths were. It's what we call today strengths-based leadership. And he would pour himself into getting much better in what he was already good at so that when an opportunity presented itself, he could take hold of that opportunity with his strengths. Godwin says, early on, Abraham revealed a keystone attribute essential to success in any field, the motivation and willpower to develop every talent he possessed to the fullest. The third quotation, she says, is left on his own, Abraham had to educate himself. He had to take the initiative. He had to assume responsibility for securing books And he had to decide what to study. In essence, he became his own teacher. Lincoln, when asked in an interview one time, he said, I'll study and get ready, and then the chance will come. And then finally, in an interview with some of his fellow statesmen, here is what they recall. The rookie assemblyman was, in the words of his friend William Herndon, anything but conspicuous during the opening session of state legislature. He remained quietly in the background, patiently educating himself about the assembly and how it operated, acquainting himself with the intricacies of parliamentary procedure. He carefully monitored debates and discerned the ideological risks between the fellow Whigs and the Democrats. Aware that he was in the presence of an unusually talented group of legislatures, including two future presidential candidates, six future United States senators, and eight future congressmen, and three state Supreme Court justices, Lincoln was neither bashful nor timid. He was simply paying close attention, absorbing and readying to act as soon as he had accumulated sufficient knowledge to do so. A finely developed sense of timing, knowing when to wait and when to act, would remain Lincoln's repertoire and his leadership skills for the rest of his life. Abraham Lincoln likened all of his success in leadership, both in business as well as in politics, to taking hold and making the most of every opportunity afforded him. He didn't grow up in privilege like Teddy Roosevelt. He didn't grow up with a political family that helped him rise 
He didn't grow up like the rest of the kids. He was unusually tall, even from an early age. He was made fun of. He came from nothing. And what he did was he intentionally considered everything around him, and he viewed it as an opportunity to grow, to become better, to become better prepared, so that when opportunity knocked, he could respond. That is exactly where we are going to spend the next three months of our collective time together as a church. We're going to be doing an in-depth study through the book of James. James is a, is a book that speaks to many things, but if there's a common thread or theme that runs the course throughout the entire book, it is this. Where our faith is concerned, we need to be ready to demonstrate fruit when opportunity knocks. When opportunity knocks. If there's a key verse that you could hang on in this entire sermon series, it's, it's probably James 2.8. Listen, you, you tell me that you have faith, but I, I'm going to demonstrate my faith in my deeds. He's going to go on to talk about the importance and the significance of faith. What we're called to, that true religion is caring for the least of these, the orphans and the widows. He's going to go on to talk about taking advantage of every opportunity. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to learn that he'll say things like, look, if you want wisdom, go ask Papa God, and he's going to give it to you generously. But when you ask, don't be double-minded. Don't doubt that God can give that to you, because then you're, you're a little more than tossed and thrown about by the waves of the sea. You, you look in the mirror, you, you see what you look like, and then you walk away and forget what you, what you look like. In other words, you have an opportunity for, for great knowledge. So when the opportunity presents itself, when opportunity knocks, seize that opportunity. You have an opportunity to care for the least of these. When those opportunities present themselves, seize those opportunities. This book is not a book about the do's and the don'ts of religion. This is not a checklist that I want you to write down all the objectives of becoming the best Christian that you know how to be. This is less about doing the things of your faith and all about being the person that Christ has called and prepared you to be. So that when opportunity presents itself, you can act out of obedience and make a significant difference. If I had to give today's message a topic or a title, it would simply be this. Get ready. Get ready. There will be opportunities throughout the rest of your life here on earth. So long as God is giving you breath in your lungs, the ability to interact with others around you, there are going to be opportunities to live out your faith. So if we are going to have opportunities to live out our faith, we must first get ready so that when opportunity knocks, we can respond. That we can be equipped to respond in a manner that honors Christ and takes all the guesswork out of our faith for others. Let me invite you to grab your Bible up front and turn to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, I want to strongly encourage you to raise your hand and allow one of my friends, one of our ushers, to come and bring you a Bible. These Bibles are a gift. They are a gift from us to you. They're yours to have and to keep. Simply hold up your hand, indicating that you'd like a Bible. Turn to the book of James. It is the eighth from the last book in the New Testament. One of the easiest way to find it is going to go uh, be about 15 sixteenths of the way through your Bible or seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. Uh, if you want, you can also go to the beginning of your Bible. There should be 
uh, an appendix and then there should be a table of contents and in that we'll have a page number for you. It is right after Hebrews, which we actually, two of the last five messages, we've been in Hebrews, both Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 12. So hopefully by the end of this sermon series, James, if you were to drop your Bible on the floor, it will, it will, it will open right to the book of James because of how worn it will be. I told you early on this year that we began to pray as a leadership team about what we felt God calling us to do this year. And the one central theme that we heard over and over again is that we felt that this was going to be a year of growth. January 7th of this year, when we were in the midst of our Stronger series, where we looked at 12 spiritual disciplines, I challenged each one of us in our church to take the James challenge, the SOAP challenge, S-O-A-P, study, observation, application, and prayer. And in that challenge, I said, read one chapter of the book of James every day for the next 30 days, and you will have read the book of James seven times all the way through. I know that many of you took that challenge because you were emailing me questions, and there was interaction on social media, and I think that's fantastic. All of that, hopefully, you're going to see how it all leads up to today. And if you didn't take that challenge, it is not too late. We have it on our social media. We can make sure we put it on our blog so that you have access to it. We're going to jump into the book of James today, and as we do, I want to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Today, I do want to let you guys know up front, today is going to be more teaching and less preaching. I hope you are good with that. I really, truly want today to be about context and culture, because as I have so often said and absolutely believe, that the better we understand culture and context, the better able we are to understand and apply the word of God to our lives. So today is going to be a big setup for where we're going to be the next three months. This will take us all the way through the rest of 2018. Let's begin in prayer and let's jump in. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to spend time together in your word. And I pray that as we do, that you would open up our hearts, that you would ready our minds, that you would eliminate distractions that would keep us from encountering you. After all, Lord, that's why we exist, to be a community where people can encounter you and our lives will be changed forever. Not because of any action or deed that we do, but because of the presence and the power of you in and through our lives. I pray that you would illuminate our minds to your truth Father, I pray right now that I might decrease, that you might increase. Give me the power that I'll need in body to be obedient to what you've called me to in spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be an acceptable and pleasing gift to you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to jump in, and we are going to read, and we are going to stop all throughout. So, note takers... Get your pens and pencils ready. Get your highlighters ready. We have got a lot to unpack in four short verses. We're going to be in James 1, verses 1 through 4 today. Let's begin. This letter is from James. In the New Testament, we learn of four different James, two of whom are disciples. This one here, we're going to learn in Galatians 1 and in John 7 that this is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. In John 7, it says clearly that Jesus' own brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. And then in Galatians, we see, as Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he, he, he notes out in his letter that individuals that turn in their life at the resurrection of Jesus... And he mentions clearly, he states obviously that James, Jesus' brother, was one who, while Jesus was here on earth for his 33 years, living in the same house, being raised by the same parents, eating at the same table, that he believed that he, I'm sorry, excuse me, he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised one, the one who had been prophesied about. 
Which one of you, if you're honest, would be ready to identify your sibling as the son of God? And can you imagine, can you imagine what it would be like to play any game with Jesus? When I was growing up in the 80s, Bo Jackson was the be-all, end-all of sports, him and Michael Jordan. The, uh, the, the concept that Nike came up with was Bo knows, that Bo can do anything. He was a baseball player, he was a football player, but then they took that ad and they expanded it to where Bo was the most exceptional athlete at everything he did. Yet Bo was flawed. He broke his hip, ended his career. Jesus never flawed. Entirely complete and perfect. Imagine playing chess with him. Checkmate in one move. Is that even a thing? Imagine playing basketball with Jesus. Talk about the ultimate proverbial game of horse. I just imagine, and I'm saying this in jest, but I want us to understand that growing up as the, the, the carnal flesh brother of Jesus, born of Mary and Joseph, can you imagine what it must have been to live under that roof? How many of us don't like it when our siblings are right? How many of us don't like it when anybody other than ourselves is right? I cannot remember the last time my wife Stacy was right about something. I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. You were so right. You are awesome. We have a saying in our house, we don't want to confess who's right or wrong. So I will simply say, hey, Stacy, if I'm not left-handed, I must be right. <laughs> and we will admit that somebody was correct without ever admitting that we were somehow wrong. Jesus never sinned. Constantly nice to the old ladies, always holding doors, leaving the biggest tips around. Ask questions. Does anybody have the answer? Oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. Just imagine James holding his head. Oh, not again. James thought Jesus had lost his mind. Remember, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and the disciples come and say, Lord, your, your, your mom and your siblings are outside. They think you've lost your mind. Jesus says, well, tell me, who are my, my mother and my brothers and sisters? Anybody who does my will is my brother and sister. And James is with his mom saying, we got to shut him up. We got to stop him. The guy's a lunatic. And then some 12 years, this letter is written around 45 to 47 AD. Some 8 to 12 years after Jesus death and resurrection and ascension, James has to come full circle. Have you ever thought you were so right about something only to find out that you were absolutely wrong? How humbling is that? And then to write about it, to suggest and to submit to say, I was completely wrong. I was wrong for 33 years. Jesus was who he said he was. So uh, that's important when you understand the gravity of the letter that James is writing. He said, this letter is from James a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why I've spent so much time explaining the relationship between James and Jesus. He goes from the physical brother of Jesus and he becomes a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to become a slave, it's an indentured servant. And I want you to understand that they didn't have lending institutions like you and I have today. There wasn't a local U.S. bank or a Washington County bank or any, anything like that where you could go into to Twin, Rivers bank and, and Twin Rivers Bank and ask for a loan. So if you owed someone something, 
unless your family were to carry that debt and pay that debt for you, what you would do is you would go to the individual that you were in debt to and you would become an indentured servant, which means that you would, for a period of seven years in most cases, would agree under legal contract to become a slave or a servant to the master of your debt. And for seven years, you would work. You would live in that home. You would work, or at least in that compound, you would live there. You would work there. You would have a family there. You would raise your family there. But you would work to pay off your debt. And every seven years, that debt is forgiven. The year of Jubilee, significant. We see throughout Scripture, that debt is forgiven. But there were instances, friends, where people had become so moved by the relationship that they formed with their master with the individual that they were in debt to that at the end of the seven years they would look around and they would consider the land that they were working and they would consider the family that they had brought up there they would consider the living circumstances and the situations and they would realize that they absolutely loved where they were at and what they were doing and so they would go to the master of the house and they would say listen I know that my debt is forgiven I know that my time is up but I want to submit to you that I will stay here and I will become a voluntary servant I will become a voluntary slave an indentured servant under contract indeed for the remainder of my days in my freedom where I once was serving out of obligation and under contract, in my freedom, I choose to serve you as the master in my life. And if the master of the house would agree, he would then take in these, in these uh, stone homes, they would take them over by the doorposts. And he would take what was very similar to an ice pick and all, and they would take the earlobe of the individual asking to become an indentured servant, they would put it right up against the wood post, and they would pierce the ear of the indentured servant, and they would put a ring in it, which became a brand. It became significant to represent, to say, look, this is a choice that he had, and a choice that he made, and a choice that I entered into mutually under agreement. He is my servant, though free, he is choosing to serve me the remainder of his days. When James says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, this means that he has become an indentured servant. He is literally suggesting that he has gone to the master of his life and he has said, in my freedom, I choose to serve you. I choose to obey you. I choose to live my days for you. He is saying, this is my brand. This is the brand that I carry. When people see me, like when they see someone walking through town with an earring hanging from their ear, they immediately identify that that person is an indentured servant of an individual in that community. He is saying that I want my life to be a brand. I want my life to be a symbol. I want my life to represent that I am an indentured servant, not only to the God of the created universe, the one who spoke the stars and the skies into existence, who breathed life into man's lungs, the author and perfecter of our faith, but then he goes on to say, and it is significant, not only am I giving my life to God, but I am also becoming an indentured servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the familial change? Do you see the, that he goes from being the carnal brother, the flesh and blood brother of Jesus, to saying, you are not just my brother by birth, you are my Lord and my master. It is not enough to simply know and have a right concept of God, or to know and have a right concept of salvation, 
We are called to put our salvation into practice, but that point of practice begins and ends by complete surrender. I would argue that there are folks sitting in front of me right now as these very words fall from my lips that have a right concept of God, that have a proper perspective of Jesus, that would identify themselves under the banner of Christianity, but that have yet to fully surrender their lives in every fashion as an indentured servant to Jesus Christ to say all that I am and all that I have is yours. This is significant. Before that, we cannot truly experience the fullness of a life in Christ. James says, and I am writing to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes represent what? Israel, which is now a remnant. Why is it a remnant? I'm writing to Jewish believers that are scattered abroad. They are scattered abroad in what we know as the diaspora or the dispersion. This began shortly after Jesus' ascension. And I want you to earmark the book of James and flip to the left just a few pages and head to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. We're going to read just a couple of verses. Hold your finger in James. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Beginning in verse 57, I want us to understand the diaspora. I want us to understand this dispersion. I want us to understand what's going on. Acts seven fifty-seven through 8, 3. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. This is after Stephen declared his created purpose. And they saw it as a sign of blasphemy. They rushed at him and they dragged him out into the city and they began to stone him. There would have been a pit in the middle of the city that they would have thrown Stephen into and then collectively in a big, uh, a big mass melee would have begun to throw stones at Stephen's body as he lay in the pit. His accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, a Pharisee. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed two things. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And what he did then is he died. What, is, what, 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 what do you recognize in the prayers that he prayed? Don't they seem oddly, strangely familiar and tied to what Jesus prayed on that cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my soul. What Stephen is not doing is Stephen is not saying that I am equal or co-equal with Christ. What Stephen is saying is, as my Savior demonstrated for me, so I must do. People who argue about good works in Christianity, that we're saved by grace, not by works, so that nobody can boast, I don't dispute that. I'm not saved because of any good work or deed in me. I am incapable of saving myself. But my argument in turn is that when we become fully just fully grown disciples of Jesus, we become indentured servants, we then have to model and mimic the behaviors that we saw Jesus doing. Jesus' ministry, his teaching and his miracles all began with meeting physical felt needs of the people in the community around him. And if Jesus took the time to meet with orphans and widows and children and to heal and to give and to, to multiply food and to do all kinds of cool things, what makes us think that we are not required in kind to serve? It's not a requirement for salvation, but it is a requirement if you choose to demonstrate your salvation. So Stephen said, Lord, don't charge him with his sin, and then he died. Verse 8. 
or chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women, and he threw them into prison. This is the beginning of the great persecution in the Christian church. This is the beginning of the diaspora. This is the beginning of this dispersion, and we are going to see, history tells us, that this, this persecution, it, at least during the time that James is writing, mid-AD 40s, that this is at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, that they have forced these Jewish Christians out of their land, out of their families, out of their communities, and they are being exiled to Babylonia and to Assyria and to other regions around. James is writing from Jerusalem. He is writing a letter to ones that he loves, ones that he identifies as believers, Jewish believers that have been scattered abroad. These are individuals that knew religion but had an encounter with Christ and life had been radically changed. And he writes as a form of encouragement and instruction. Here's what he says in verse 2 of James chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, which we will see as we study this, that he says over a dozen times, He's relating to them that I am one of you. We are in this together. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way. Friend, I cannot encourage you enough to circle the word when. When. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say there's a chance. He is saying that it is a guarantee. I was told early on that there are two things that you can rest assured in life. That you will die and you will pay taxes. This is one of those guarantees. Troubles will come. Persecution is what they were dealing with. He didn't, he, he's not talking to a church that didn't have an understanding of what was going on. He is talking to a group that is enthralled with persecution. These are people that are losing their lives. Some decade later, people are going to be burned on a stake by Nero and they are going to line the city streets. He is burning Christian bodies to provide light in the middle of the darkness. This is the precursor for extreme persecution. They are being stoned alive. They are being drugged from their homes. They are being persecuted because of the person of Jesus in their life. They know persecution. So James doesn't have to say, hey guys, in the event that persecution comes, what he's saying, and I've said it, is if you're not in the middle of a storm right now, either you just got done with one or one is coming. That is true of our lives. That if you're not sitting here this morning and say, Pastor, I am in the middle of a storm, then that means either you just got done with the storm or you'd better get prepared because one is coming. Jesus guaranteed it. In this world, you will have troubles of many kinds, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We somehow check out when he says, you will have troubles of many kinds, and we forget how he finishes. But take heart, I've overcome the world, I've conquered I'm sufficient. I'm enough. He's writing, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Boy, let's not lose that word consider. To consider something denotes that there is an intentional effort given to thought. He doesn't suggest that you go into this haphazardly. He says, you need to consider. You need to be intentional and give thought to. Think this through. Talk it out. 
write out the consequences, the pros and the cons. Give this the attention that it deserves. He doesn't say, hey, whenever things happen, just go ahead and feel really great about it. He's saying that in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your moral failure, in the midst of your burdens, in the midst of your, your, your health crises, in the midst of your failed marriage, in the midst of your kids who are rebelling, in the midst of your addictions, in the midst of your brokenness and your garbage and your junk, in the midst of all of this, he says, you need to take time to stop and consider what it means to become a complete servant to Jesus. Because until you fully surrender your life to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, never will you understand or realize or be able to know this great joy that he talks about. We are not called to live a Mary Poppins life. We are not called to skip and hop from one scene to the next, spinning our umbrella and singing songs. That's a byproduct of Jesus in us, and sometimes our songs are songs of mourning. But we are called to give intentional effort to this. I didn't do fantasy football this year. You know why? Because Pastor Mark Zanotto, my executive pastor, allowed fantasy football through Yahoo to do an auto draft. He had nothing to do with it. And he beat me. If you're going to beat me, you put some thought into it. You don't let some algorithm beat me. You didn't beat me, Zanotto. The computer did. And I said, we're done. If you're going to cheat, I'm out. When I go into a fantasy football draft, I consider the pros and the cons of drafting somebody like Le'Veon Bell who decides when he wants to play and when he does. I consider, I consider whether I want to take Nick Foles or Carson Wentz. I, I, cons- I consider the defense. I, can- I put two- Part of why I stopped this because I took up way too much time in my life. <laughs> Shocking, I know. We are called to consider, to give deliberate attention to. What are we called to give deliberate attention to? Consider it an opportunity for great joy. When we look at the word joy from a Western perspective, from a dictionary's perspective, we are drawn to the idea and understanding, and I want you to know that it is a false understanding that this is a happiness, that this is an emotional thing. James is not saying, hey, in the middle of your cancer diagnosis, you should be really happy about that. Hey, I know your wife just walked out on you. She's having an affair with your best friend. You should be happy about that. Hey, I I know that you have to file bankruptcy because of the way the stock market went and you just lost everything. You should really be happy about that. That's not what he says. And this is the danger of reading without culture and context. When you look at that word in the original Greek language, the word is kara. The word kara is the same root word where we get charis, which is the word grace. Grace is only possible where Jesus is present. Grace in your life is only possible where Jesus is present. That word kara means joy. It means happiness. It means to be completely fulfilled. The only way that we are going to be completely fulfilled in the midst of our disasters is where there's grace. And grace is only evident when Jesus is present in your life. The only way that we can find joy, biblical joy, true joy, authentic joy, is when we have the full presence of God in us and through us regardless of our circumstances. God is not a God of your circumstances, friends. He is a God over your circumstances. 
He is bigger than anything you are facing right now. And when you recognize that and realize that, then you are able to understand and apply the kara, the grace, the, the, the goodness, the complete feeling of joy in your life because it's not about an emotion, it's about the presence of Jesus. It's not about an emotion, it's about the presence of Jesus. I almost, I want to be very honest with you right now. Friday night, I reached out to two friends one in California, one in Texas. And I asked if I could buy their plane ticket so that they could come and preach this weekend, Friday night. Neither one of them was available. But the reason for the ask is because I feel like a hypocrite. Right now, there are circumstances in my life that I am having a hard time finding joy in. But what I realize and recognize is I'm missing the joy because I've removed Jesus from the equation. I've moved away from soul sufficiency of Jesus and into the self-dependency of Andrew. That I'm going to will my way through this. I'm going I'm to buckle down and I'm going to work harder and I'm going to say more and I'm going to do better. Friends, I will never be able to do enough or say enough or be enough. And because of that, I will never know the true and the most pure sense of joy until I fully surrender my life to Jesus and become an indentured servant and say, all that I am and all that I have is yours. And then regardless of the circumstances, my joy cannot be robbed because of the presence and the power of Christ in me and at work through me. That's why I'm preaching this morning. Not because of my circumstances. They're still hard but because my Jesus is bigger than any circumstance I'm facing right now. Some of you have allowed your circumstances to cripple you. I get it, I'm there. This morning, let me remind you that we are called to become indentured servants and say, Father, all that I am and all that I have, including all the bad stuff, it's yours. In fact, can you take that stuff first? He says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know, here it is again. He's not suggesting it might happen. He's saying, you already understand this. You're already living this. You're already in the midst of this persecution. For you know that when your faith is tested, that word tested in the original language, that word tested in the original language literally means to work to understand genuine faith. We see testing as a negative, as a derogative, or a derogatory. Jesus creates testing so that we have an opportunity to demonstrate genuine faith. How many of us, the last time you considered what you're going through, counted it an opportunity to live out your faith? James says, you say you have faith, but I'm living it out in the midst of persecution. I'm living it out in how I spend my money. I'm living it out with who I spend my time with. I'm living it out in where I spend my time. I'm living it out in the attitudes and the actions of my life. These tests are not going anywhere, but these tests are an opportunity. Hello? When opportunity knocks, these tests that you are facing are an opportunity to demonstrate not your faith, but your genuine faith. Your genuine faith. It's an opportunity to demonstrate your genuine faith. How many of you have been faking your faith? How many of you have a right concept of God, a right understanding, but you've never fully surrendered? And so when it comes to matters of faith, when crisis comes, your whole world falls apart. If your whole world falls apart in the middle of turmoil, emotionally it's completely understandable. But where faith is concerned, it makes no sense. 
I'm convicted of that. I am convinced. The Lord said almost in an audible voice this morning at 5.30 in my office, Andrew, read the Psalms. I was in the middle of doing stuff. Andrew, read the Psalms. Andrew, so I opened to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. That is that you may be planted, rooted by streams of water that come from God. The reason that you can experience true joy is because of the person of Christ in you and over your circumstances. And the reason that you can look at your taste, your testing in life as an opportunity to demonstrate your faith is because you are rooted in God. And the only way that I know to be rooted in God is to be rooted and established in his word and to be living in authentic community with other brothers and sisters. I said authentic community. I said authentic community. That's hard for us. It's foreign. It doesn't make sense. If you think that week in and week out, when I get up here and I air out my dirty laundry and I share my struggles with you, if you think that that is easy or that I somehow want you to feel bad for me, you're missing it completely. I am being obedient to what I feel God calling me to be so that you have permission to be authentic as well. If the primary preacher from your pulpit can tell you that life sucks sometimes, well, you should have permission to feel that way too. And don't cover it up. Because we need one another. I was at a friend's house on Friday night. Him and his wife. Love him deeply. I sat in that living room crying with my wife. And then I was surrounded by a couple of my elders and some staff that came in and just just prayed over us. They didn't offer solutions. They didn't bail us out in that sense. We thought through some strategy. We considered how we're going to work through these things. But what they did in that moment is they didn't leave us alone. The only way that they can bless you and love you and care for you is if you're authentic about your struggles. Come on, church. Stop faking it till you make it. You're going to die in misery. Nobody wants that for you. You don't want that for you. And so he, James says here, he says, look, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Your endurance has a chance to grow. And then he says, maybe my favorite verse in the entire book of James, he says, so let it grow. Stop stopping it. Let it grow. Yes, it's painful, but it's in the pain that you begin to grow. Monday and Tuesday, I worked out with a student of ours here at this church, Jackson Lorenz. He goes about 6'3", about 250, and he's just built like a brick house. I'm so jealous. He loves to work out with me. We work out together. Guys, he's not here, so I'm going to tell you this this morning. It kills me to keep up with him. And I do just enough to lift heavier than he does, but I feel it for weeks, not days, weeks. This last week, we did chest on Monday, we did back on Tuesday. I'm still having a hard time drinking any fluids. My chest, here's what I know about physiology. When your muscles are stretched beyond their ability, your, your, your muscles get these micro tears that then fill up with lactic acid and proteins that will strengthen that fiber. And it's in the tearing that it becomes stronger and bigger. Here's what I also know about lifting. If you want to grow biggest and, and, and fastest, you have to do what is known in the, in the gym world as negative sets. What's a negative set? Well, easy math. Let's just say I can bench 100 pounds and I can Let's just say I can bench press 100 pounds, but I can't bench press 400 pounds. What I would do is I would put on more weight than I was able to carry on my own so that my partner would be able to spot me and would help me through those sets, which caused my muscles to work completely different. And it's in the pain and the growth 
that I realize I'm growing the, the most. I see it. But I couldn't do it on my own. I can't do a negative set on my own. The barbell would be on my throat. The same is true of our faith. If we want to grow, we've got to grow together. We've got to help each other through our negative sets. You've got to say, look, I know you're struggling right now, but keep pushing. I'm right here. I've got you. I'm going to pull this up. And I just keep going. Drive. Push. We are called to do this life and ministry together. He says, so let it grow. For when, there it is again, not if, when your endurance is fully developed at the second coming of Christ, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. The reason that we need for so much is because we have not fully surrendered to Jesus. This is a very hard truth to tell you this morning, but if you were here this morning and you were desperately thriving and striving and feeling empty by the things of this world, that is because you have not fully surrendered your life to Jesus. When you fully surrender your life to Jesus and become an indentured servant and say, all that I am and all that I have is yours, your perspective on life and your priorities will shift dramatically. All of a sudden, you'll see the things that you do and the things that you value totally different. So here's a question as we wrap up this morning. Opportunity is knocking all around you to live out your faith. What is keeping you from living out your faith? What is keeping you from opening the door to the opportunity that God has in front of you? Right now, in a matter of moments, you're going to have an opportunity to go to lunch somewhere. What is keeping you from ministering to your waitress or your waiter? This afternoon, you're going to go home. Guys, you're going to have an opportunity to minister to your wives by acts of service, by doing things you wouldn't normally do. Dishes and laundry and cleaning and sweeping and just tell your wife to, to, to go sit down and, and, and watch football and you'll take care of the dishes. <laughs> What's keeping you from that opportunity? Financially, you're going to have an opportunity to give to somebody this week. In fright, right now, can I be, it's really hard to talk about for most people. I'm not, I don't apologize. You have an opportunity to give to this church as you leave today. And when you give to this church, it allows us to do, Alex talked about it. Uh, on Sunday mornings, I think we're averaging at 130 kids. And on Wednesday night at Juana's, we're at about 145. We don't do that without your faithful giving and obedience to Christ. So keep doing it. And not only do it, but do it even more. What are you going to do with it? You don't need more shoes. Stop it. <laughs> Buy some Starbucks and brew it at home. Start giving... What is keeping you from, the opportunity, from responding to the opportunity that God has in front of you? The answer, you. You. You're the only thing standing in the way of God doing what he wants to do in you and through you. And mostly because you're afraid of the pain that comes with the trial. But do you know it's in the middle of the pain that people can respond to you most, that they can meet your needs most, and that you rely on Jesus most? How many of you in your complete comfort have ever said, God, I need you right now. I need you in my complacent comfort. I need you in Hawaii on these 82 degree days on the sandy beach where they're bringing me mojitos. Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. No, 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 no. That's when you're in the doctor's office and they're saying, you need an MRI. You need a CAT scan. We need to do a barium test. We need to look and see just how bad it is. You're not saying at that point, no, God, I got this. You're saying, God, I need you. Most of us who don't want to call out to God is because we're afraid of the tests and the trials. But without the trust and the trials, we'll never know the fullest, fullness of the power and the authority that the Holy Spirit has in our life. So the only thing stopping you from responding to the opportunity that God has in front of you is you. And the only thing I know to tell you to do is to say, I'm sorry, to repent to God, say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please take this from me. 
And then begin right now saying, Lord, I am your servant. I am your slave. All that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And then get ready. Get ready. Don't shy away from the opportunities when people are there. I'm going to close with a, with a story I didn't plan on closing with. <clears throat> I was in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago with my son. My son was still hungry after a huge double helping of steak burrito bowl at Chipotle. And I'm on the phone with Pastor Mark. And he said, hey, Dad, can I go to Starbucks and get a sandwich? I said, yeah, Pally, just get me a drink and bring it back with you. So he goes in line. He's at Union Station by himself over there. I'm sitting at Chipotle talking to Mark. He comes back. I get out the phone with Mark. He's got my passion, tranquility, peach tea, and his sandwich. And I don't know that he tasted it because he kind of... And he said, hey, Dad, um, I just want to let you know that there was a woman in line. And she had a whole bunch of pennies that she had dumped out on the counter. And she couldn't afford a drink. And so I just said, hey, can I buy you a drink for you? She turned around and she began to sob. And she thanked me three times. And she swept her pennies back into her little cup. And she took her drink and she went outside. And she thanked me again and said, I just can't believe you would do this. He said, Dad, I just really feel like I want to do more. Can we do more? And I said, Pally, what do you think? And so he gave me a dollar amount. And then he said, can I have your debit card? (laughs) So we went to the ATM. We pulled pulled out some money. And I stayed back. I said, Pally, if this is what the Lord's laying on your heart, this is an opportunity for you to live out your faith. You go do that. And I stayed back, probably further than I am from Pastor Alex right now. And I watched as he walked up to this woman. She could not have been five foot tall, and I promise you she wasn't 80 pounds. I didn't plan on saying this, otherwise I'd have a picture up here. I'll have it next service. Come back. And I just took a picture. My son walked up, and he said, excuse me. And I'm hearing faintly. He said, I just was so blown away at how much gratitude you had for the cup of coffee I bought you. I just really felt like the Lord wanted me to give this to you. And he opened up his hand and had a fistful of 20s. This, the 15-year-old boy, this woman visibly begins to sob and snot all over his sweatshirt. We are in the middle of Union Station. This is a 15-year-old boy who cares about everything that people see. And here he is with people walking by, hundreds of people walking by, with this homeless woman, filthy, dirty, and smelly, both hands holding him. She held him for five minutes, no exaggeration. And then for 10 minutes, they learned each other's stories. And then he asked her, he said, I would love to pray for you. Can I pray over you? And he began to pray for her right there. And I walked up afterward and I said, ma'am, you don't know me, but this is my son. I would love to take a picture of you two together. If you see the smile, in fact, if you're not coming back next service, come see me. I'll go get my phone. I'll show you the picture. I don't know. When do you think the last time this woman had somebody ask her to take a picture with them? There was an opportunity, and my son in that moment could have been more concerned about the the hot chicks that were walking by because school had just let out. But he didn't care. And it just convicted me. How many times do I have an opportunity that that the Lord has put in front of me, but I come up with an excuse of why I can't do that? Oh, I got to go. Blah, 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 blah. Shut up. The reason you're not responding to the opportunity is because you're not fully surrendered to Jesus. And that's my prayer for you this morning. Father, I pray that we would live fully surrendered lives that you would have your will and your way in us. Amen.